If you guys will now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 8. We've arrived at Genesis chapter 8, the end of this chapter, where we'll pick up where we left off last week. Uh, We're going to be uh, kind of tracking through the end of Genesis chapter 10, so a large chunk this morning. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read the whole passage and to avoid the long uh, genealogies of chapter 10 again. We've put you through that one time, so we're not going to do that again. But uh, I do want to read a few excerpts here from this passage, so if you guys would please stand with me and join me in reading from Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal, some of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Moving to chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth." And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it. And remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together to him. Our Father, the one who looks out over all things, who sees us, the God who still remembers us. We look to you this morning as we gather after a week in which we have seen yet again the devastating effects of the fall, the devastating reality that we live in a world in which death is common, in which chaos is all around us, in which fires destroy and burn neighborhoods and cities, a world in which lives are taken in ways that we can never understand why. And yet, we just continue to look to you. We recognize that amidst all of the pain, the hurt, the hardship that we experience, there is still a beacon of hope, hope that has been set forth in history, in a person, and we look to him this morning. We do pray that you would bring comfort to those who are hurting, for those who have lost both physical lives, those who have lost physical properties, 
memories, homes. We ask that you would bring comfort through your spirit and ultimately through your son. Draw hearts and lives to you. Let the nations know that you still are merciful towards us and you still desire for men to come and know you. So I pray that you would guide us this morning as we look at this passage in Scripture, this story of this new hope. I pray that through it we would be drawn to worship you and to love you more. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. I want to start this morning by showing you all a picture. Do we have this picture up there? Here we go. Some of you will know what this is immediately. For others of you, you non-sports fans, uh, hang in there. It's okay. You'll get it. I even asked Brandon, who is our intern. He doesn't care about sports, doesn't like sports, doesn't ever watch sports. But I asked him, I said, hey, Brandon, trying to use this illustration. Let me know, uh, what, what do you know about the Cleveland Browns? And he said, uh, they're really bad, right? And I said, yes, perfect. That's all you need to know. So all you need to know to understand this picture is that the Cleveland Browns have been really bad at football for a long time. In fact, in the, in the modern Super Bowl era, the Browns have arguably been the worst team in the National Football League. And this picture is a testament to how bad they have been. So what this is, is a Cleveland Browns jersey, and on that is represented every quarterback who has started for them going back to 1999. So for almost 20 years, the Cleveland Browns have been searching for and trying to find their next quarterback. And every year begins with the hope for this new, this new one. Maybe this guy's going to do it. Maybe it's going to be Holcomb. Maybe it's going to be Peterson. Maybe it's Dilfer. And very quickly, that name has been crossed off the list and a new one added at the bottom. And every year, they've been struggling to find their starting quarterback, the one that can turn everything around. And this past year, they finally, with the first pick of the draft, selected a guy named Baker Mayfield. And it's too early to tell. looks promising, but everybody's wondering. Everybody's anticipating. Everybody in Cleveland is hoping that Baker is going to be the one that finally turns this around, that stops the list from continuing. Their franchise quarterback, as they say, the guy that will help turn things around and maybe even bring a championship to the city of Cleveland. Will he be the guy, is the question. And there are many places in society, and even our own lives, in which we look for the right person or the right circumstances to turn things around. A rescuer, you might say. Sometimes it's a quarterback. Other times it's a coach. In other avenues, it may be a a new CEO of a company finding the right manager to get things organized. It might be the right secretary to keep things going. In our lives, it might be the new friend. It might be a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend. It might be a spouse, or maybe the hope of seeing your spouse change in a certain way. The hope of a fresh start is often impersonal. Maybe it's a a start at at a new job. A new home or a new living situation that can turn things around. Improved health, restored relationships. 
You know those things that you say, if this would just happen, if this person would come along, then this mess would be turned around. Things would finally get on track. Things would finally start heading in the direction that I want. And here in this story, in Genesis chapter 8, we see this hope for a new start that will turn things around happening on a cosmic scale. And we left things off last week at a fairly fragile place. We're going to move through these three scenes, these three movements of this passage in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 8 through Genesis chapter 10. And so we start with number one, with this hope of a fresh start, the hope of a fresh start here at the end of Genesis chapter 8. And last week in Genesis 6 through 8, we saw God bring about this cataclysmic flood which destroyed, or better yet, uncreated the world. As humanity, following Adam's failure in the garden, continued to abandon their divine calling and they turned towards themselves, things unraveled to the point where we see the assessment by God in chapter 6 that man is corrupt to his core. We saw that the story of the flood is not some happy story of cute little animals on a party boat floating around in the ocean, but it's actually a rather shocking act of judgment from God because of human rebellion. And the shocking thing about the flood story is not necessarily that everything was destroyed, but that anything actually survived. We read at the end of chapter 7 that the waters prevailed for 150 days, and just as we saw in Genesis 1 verse 2, we have this picture of nothing but tumultuous, raging, watery globe. And then chapter 8 begins with these profound words, words that we'll hear over and over throughout the Old Testament, that God remembers. Not that He has forgotten, but that He gives attention to and turns His attention toward and His mercy towards. In this case, it's Noah. God remembers Noah. And as Aaron showed us last week, God preserved Noah through the judgment of the flood. And then we see that God separates the water. He then again dries out the land, and there is this new creation pattern, this fresh start that is given to God's creation. Noah and his family, along with the animals, come out of the ark into this newly created world. And in verse 20, we see that Noah... He builds this altar to the Lord, and he presents this offering to God. Noah recognizes God's salvation through the floodwaters. And we read that God is pleased with Noah. At this point in the story, if this was your first time reading it, sometimes our familiarity with the Bible keeps us from actually seeing the significance of things. But think about if this was your first time reading this story, strip away all the, the chapter divisions and everything, and just read it as a story, and you get to this point, if it was our first time reading it, we would say, yes, things have been set right. Things are back on track. We have a new world in which a righteous man is worshiping God as it should be. He's then commissioned to spread out over this new world. This is the fresh start that we need, right? God then extends this promise to the new world. And the scene that we just witnessed in the flood, is said that that will never happen again. 
Things are tracking in a good direction at this point. And chapter 9 expands on the ending of chapter 8, and we again see this pattern that mirrors the elements of Genesis 1 and 2, right? We see that God blesses Noah and his family, just like He did with Adam. God gives Noah this call to multiply and fill the earth, just like Adam. God restates the unchanging reality that man is made in God's image, which he says is why life should be protected and even justice pursued when a human life is taken. But we again encounter then this language of covenant to describe the relationship that God is entering into with Noah and his family. We saw this language first in Genesis chapter 6, verse 18, when God says, I'm going to bring you into this ark. And he said, I will establish my covenant with you. And here in chapter 9, that covenant is specified. A covenant is, is just this, this agreement, this promise that's formalized by, by certain signs and oaths of one entering into a, a promise relationship with another. And we will see this language all throughout our Old Testament. But God specifies in His promise to Noah that He will never destroy all flesh off the earth by a flood. And there's good reason to indicate that this isn't necessarily the creation of a new covenant relationship with man, but actually what's going on is this is a, a reestablishment of a relationship and even a covenant that was created and, and set forth in Genesis 1 through 3. The similarities between the commission of Adam and the call to Noah are so similar that it is as if God is transferring His covenant with Adam at creation to Noah and this new creation. Noah is set forth as a new Adam. And as Adam was the representative of humanity, so now at this new start of creation, Noah and his descendants are commissioned to pick up where Adam failed. The relationship is expanded on here. God, again, provides for His creation like He did before, but here in this, in this new world, things are, are a little different. Now there's this new relationship between even man and the animals as the animals fear man, and then the animals are actually then included in that which man should eat for sustenance and provision, as if there's this continual reminder that death is now a reality in this world. We start seeing that maybe things aren't quite fixed. But here we also are given this sign of the covenant that is set forth as this bow is set in the clouds. And the word here, there's, there's no, as I understand it, no real word at this time for a rainbow in the Hebrew. And so the word that's employed here is the same word that's used for an archer's bow. This is the language of weaponry. And it may just be kind of the shape of, a, of an archer's bow is similar to a rainbow. It could be that. But I think there's actually something even a little deeper here, as if God is a warrior who has just almost wiped out this entire world. And now he sets down his weapons, and his judgment turns toward his mercy. And what is interesting about this expansion of the covenant is that there are not new stipulations that are placed on Noah. God declares that no matter what, despite man's fallen condition, God will never wipe everything out again. So we see God's long-suffering and His mercy at work throughout the rest of the story. This is what becomes the theme verse of the Old Testament. 
The Lord God, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Yet he will not pardon the guilty. And so, yes, God will bring judgment. His holiness is still at odds with human rebellion and sin. He knows that man's heart is evil from his youth, and he can't simply ignore it. But his mercy is going to constantly be extended. It's almost as if God's character, his holiness, constantly should compel him to just wipe it all out. But yet, his character and his love for his creation is still driving him to extend mercy. And God is is seeking a way to bring his mercy and his justice together in the salvation of his humanity. But for us today, this Noahic covenant and this sign that we have tells us that this promise still stands to this day. We feel it in the changing of the seasons as summer has shifted to winter and then even suddenly this morning we awaken to us being thrust into the season of winter. As we see the snow falling, that doesn't just signify the start of the ski season, but it also reminds us and tells us that we who deserve death are still being preserved. When it rains and you see the rainbow in the sky, those beautiful colors which actually have been hijacked as a symbol of rebellion against God's good design, there's this deep irony that while, while that symbol is, is, is used to declare freedom from God's design, God actually continues to display it and put the rainbow there as a declaration of His mercy to us. And so here at this point in the story, we have, as Star Wars coined the title, A New Hope. Could this Noah be the fresh start that we need? Will he be the seed of the woman that will bring an end to the serpent's rule? But by the end of chapter 9, we realize that not much has changed. And we move to the second act in the story. Number two, we see the repeated cycle of Adam. In verse 18 of chapter 9, we are reminded of Noah's sons. He has offspring. Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And from this line, all of humanity has come. Everything gets traced back to Noah and his descendants. And then we are confronted with this rather strange story, possibly a disturbing story. There's lots of these kinds of stories in the Bible, those ones that make you scratch your head, the ones that we kind of just leave out of uh, the children's curriculum on Sundays, those ones that say, why is this here? What just happened? What am I supposed to do with that? And we have to remember, as we've been going over and over again, that we need to focus on the author's purpose in putting this here and not all the questions that come to mind when we read it. The author is not trying to answer all of our questions, but he's setting forth a theological purpose in this book. So what happens here, I think, is intentionally vague because those details are not the point. So let's read what happens in the story. It says, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and become drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Adam, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. 
Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see the nakedness of their father. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew that his, what his youngest son had done to him, and he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of her servants shall he be to his brothers. So we have this unusual account. But what we see is that it starts with, with Noah doing what he was called to do. It says that he, he, he becomes a gardener. He, he cultivates the ground as, as Adam was called to do. And he makes a vineyard, he plants a vineyard. And just as, as Adam had taken of the fruit that led to his shame, we see that Noah then drinks of the fruit that will lead to his shame. Noah takes this wine that he makes, which throughout Scripture signifies blessing and abundance, but when abused leads to foolishness and destruction. Noah abuses the fruit, gets drunk, which leads him to lying naked in his tent. His son sees him, and whether something darker happens is somewhat unclear. But whatever it is, Ham boasts about it. He tells his brothers. He mocks and shames his father to his brothers. His brothers respond honorably and go and cover their father. Noah awakens from his hangover and somehow realizes what has taken place. And in his anger and disgust, he pronounces a curse on the line of Ham through his youngest son, Canaan, which is highlighted here because the Canaanites will play, be major players in the story to come. So what we have in this sketchy story is this new Adam this hope of a righteous man who was supposed to restart humanity in the same condition that we saw Adam. He's naked and ashamed in his garden. The cycle of Adam has happened again. The effects of sin have survived because sin is not just out there in the world, but sin dwells inside of us. The effects of sin have survived because, because, because we are still here. Evil is within us. We carry it wherever we go. In order for God to eradicate evil, He must eliminate us. But His bow is set in the heavens and He will not wipe us all out. So we have this ongoing problem throughout our Bible. How can a holy, perfect being allow His creation to continue in this state? Will God simply ignore the fact that mankind is sinful, will he just turn away from it and ignore it? Will he just allow it to exist that man has a dark and evil heart that will constantly live in rebellion against him and his, his rule over this world? How can a perfect, holy God dwell with a sinful people? Noah, for all the hope and the promise that he appeared to offer, failed in the end. So for you, as you come in here, who have you set your hope on that has failed you? Maybe there have been some here who have seen a spiritual leader fall into sin. Maybe your spouse, who you thought would fulfill and satisfy every desire and every need of your soul, has become hardened towards you. Maybe your friend, who you thought and hoped would stand by you no matter what, has drifted away. Maybe your family, who is supposed to always have your back. Your blood has rejected you. How do you deal with the failures of those around you? The hope of those who, who you think should rescue you are saviors. 
Scripture tells us over and over that we must never place our hopes on people that can never bear the weight of our needs. We all experience the cycle of Adam in our own lives and the lives of those around us. And we see this throughout Israel's history, right? Their fathers and patriarchs are riddled with failures. They end up in slavery in Egypt. One of their leaders ends up building them a golden calf to worship, leading them astray. The king that they long for, the king that is going to make them like the other nations and make them great, turns from God and does things his own way. Who can we depend on to lead us in the right direction? What we see over and over again is that God uses fallen people to bring about his salvation. But salvation and rescue are only found in one man, the one who was tempted in all ways just like us, but yet was without sin. And the Scriptures reveal this cycle over and over again. And we begin to question, is is there any one of us who can actually help us? And the search for, for, for rescue I think is what drives a lot of the fascination today and the, the, the imagination of, of the superhero genre, right? We love the superhero because we realize that there's, there's enemies, there's evils out there that not just one of us can, can handle, can take on on our own. We need someone with special powers, special abilities. We need a superman, right? And I got to be honest, I've never been a huge fan of Superman because honestly, he's not a man. He's an alien. So, there's that. I'm more of a Spider-Man guy. You know, this just normal, everyday kid, has great one-liners, really smart, who uh, just, just, just gets, gets uh, something bestowed upon him, something happens that transforms him outside of himself, and he has to wrestle with what he does with this power now. I love the Spider-Man character. But all of these stories throughout the Bible keep telling us that we don't just need another man, we need the perfect human, the superhuman, maybe a God-man. So we see the repeated cycle of Adam, and we move to the third movement in the story, the promise of a new humanity, the promise of a new humanity In the curse that's pronounced upon Canaan, we are reminded of the devastating consequences of sin. It spreads like a cancer throughout humanity and leads us down the same path. But in the blessing, in verse 26, that is pronounced upon Shem, we see a promise of ongoing hope. Chapter 10 gives us this table of nations, as it's been called. And these generations that are set forth are not meant to be exhaustive or technical, but they're laid out with and crafted with a specific purpose in mind. The line of Japheth spreads out to Turkey and towards Europe. The sons of Ham settle in the region of Palestine, as we know it, in northern Africa. Shem spreads out towards the east. But then in the, in the, in the genealogy, there's something highlighted in Shem's descent. descent. Shem has this guy named Eber, a son named Eber, and Eber has two sons, Peleg and Joktan. And there's this little quote that's attached to Peleg. It says, in his day, the earth was divided. And I think that is indicating kind of this, this, this dividing of humanity towards the line of redemption and then out towards the nations. And this, this guy Joktan is traced at the end of chapter 10, which sets us up for what happens next in chapter 11 in the city of Babel. 
And then later in chapter 11, it goes back and picks up Peleg's line and tracks him all the way to Abraham. And in these genealogies, we see a couple of things. First, from the beginning, God has always been concerned about the nations. Everything gets traced back to one line, one humanity. All of humanity comes from these lines, and even though God is working with a specific line and highlighting a specific people, His desire is and always has been to bring blessing and salvation to all the nations. We also see that in the line of Shem, the promise of a new humanity is set forth. And God is going to over and over again use broken and messed up sinful people to bring about His plan of redemption. And as you read this story, God does it against all odds. Genesis 10 takes us from humanity on the brink of extinction to a new start in Noah. But we see in this story that we don't just need a fresh start, we need a new humanity. We must die because that is where sin lives. We need a new heart and a new life. We go from Noah, another failed hope, and we trace this line on and on, waiting for God to finally fulfill His promise to take care of the snake. And as we follow the story, as we often do, we arrive at Jesus, who ends up again in a garden, but he doesn't fall asleep drunk, but he endures through the night, and he prays, Father, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus takes the chaos of sin on himself so that we can be saved through the judgment that falls upon him. So in case you've missed it over these past few weeks, all of these stories that we read in the Old Testament They come together to create one big story, a story that points to Jesus. And it is in Him that this ongoing tension between God's justice, the demand of His character to stomp out sin, comes together with His love for us. And it says, Romans declares that it's only in Christ that God can be both just uphold His own justice, and at the same time, declare sinners righteous. And this is the image that we are given in baptism, in the declaration of our faith, the inward reality that we declare publicly. As we enter the waters, which isn't just this medium used to dunk someone, but it's actually this this symbol that, that throughout the Bible is this tumultuous evil and death. We, in Christ, enter the waters of baptism and we die. Our old self is put to death and through that judgment, we are raised to new life. We are born as a new humanity. The life of Christ is our life. So we don't just need a second chance, a better society, a better election result, a new career path, a better spouse. What we need is a transformed humanity. And it's only in Christ that we actually see this promise come to fulfillment. So maybe you're here. You've been hearing these stories ever since you were a little kid. Maybe for others, you're just starting to understand the Bible and be introduced to these things. No matter where you came from, hopefully you are beginning to see this one big story that comes together in the Bible. 
that is telling us one big narrative. But I imagine that many of us still read these things and we struggle to, to, to know, how, how does this connect to my life? What am I actually supposed to, to do with this? How do I see these stories and even this big story that actually like shape me or, or impact me? Because we still read it and we, and we say, okay, Cain was a murderer. Should I, should I just not be a murderer? Noah got drunk. Should I just not get drunk? Maybe those are good ideas, but, but that's not the overall focus or thrust of these, of these passages. And as they come together... They, they reveal to us this truth, and I, I've heard it said, and I think it's so, so helpful for us to understand this, that what the Bible does is that it gives us a narrative in which we can live. You see, we all have different narratives or stories that shape the lenses through which we view our life, right? Our experiences. What is the narrative through which you view your life? What story do you hear? What movie do you watch? What song do you listen to? And you say, that's me. Or you say, I wish that was me. How do you tell your story? And what story are you trying to live out? Maybe for some, it's the narrative of the classic American dream, right? That with enough hard work, you can overcome all obstacles You can climb to the top, be whatever you want to be, settle into your ideal home with your new cars and your three weeks vacation. And that's the good life that will satisfy. That's the best we can hope for. Maybe you're here and you're a a younger, maybe millennial, and uh, the whole American dream thing is a little boring to you. So maybe maybe for you, it's uh, you need a little more adventure. So for you, the narrative is, is, is that of the world traveler, the one who connects with all, all cultures and, and, and people groups and becomes a more holistic human. And ultimately, other people and places become props, extras, and supporting casts in the story of your life. Maybe you're the guy with the chip on his shoulder because he was always picked last in kickball and continues to be underestimated. Maybe you're the woman was just never noticed, never loved, never recognized. Maybe you're the victim of others' abusiveness and you're just trying to get past your past. Maybe you're the self-made man who has made his way through life by sheer grit and determination. Maybe you're someone who just has the worst luck and nothing seems to go out, go your way. Maybe you're someone who has been consistently betrayed by those you trust and you're jaded and always on edge, always has barriers around you. Maybe you're one who will not let anyone get in your way. You will break through on your own no matter what to prove your worth. Maybe you're just simply lost and confused in this hectic world, searching for who you are and where you belong. The narrative of the wanderer is your story. What is the narrative that you see yourself in? You see, when we come to the Bible, we're confronted with all these stories, these images that are meant to identify with us in a variety of ways. We see the disordered waters in Genesis chapter 1 and again in the flood. So what is the chaos and the mayhem that you need a creator to tame and to order into peace? You feel, we all feel the draw inside of us to ignore God and to define for ourselves what is good and evil. You experience and see the spiraling darkness of the world that we live in. Just read your newsfeed. 
Or maybe just even look back over your life. Evil and sin are very real, almost as tangible as the raging sea. How are you going to get through it? What story is going to rescue you? What path, what truth, what person can bring order and rescue from the chaos? And when this Jesus character shows up, we begin to see that this guy is different. He isn't terrified by the raging seas, but he actually walks across them to us. He falls asleep. He can, he can sleep amidst the, the raging storm. And then with a, with a word, calm the seas that are about to engulf his disciples. Jesus comes along and shows himself to be the true Adam that Noah failed to be. He lives the perfect human life, bearing God's image for us. You see, we didn't need just a recreation of the world. We needed a recreation of humanity. And this is why it is so crucial when the Apostle Paul proclaims in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. You see, God, through Christ, brings us into His story, into His grand narrative, and He rewrites ours. What is true of Him can be true of us. His life is my life. His story becomes your story. The gospel, the story of ultimate redemption, the one that we find hints of throughout all types of media and songs and TV shows. The one that we long for is only found ultimately in Christ, the one who has gone through the waters of judgment and brings us through to a new life. He alone restores our nature, gives us a new identity, and narrates our new story. So let's stop clinging and looking for that next just fresh start, that new hope. Let's let let God in Christ reshape us into the new restored image of God. And let us go forth and proclaim His goodness and His glory in His world. Let's pray to this God who has rescued us. Father, we look to You as we see another man who You used in amazing ways, who You chose to save through the waters of the flood, And yet we see that He wasn't the ultimate answer. But we know that You have testified over and over as we remember the cross of Christ that You have brought the rescue that we needed, the the creation inside of us that is the actual thing that we need. So I pray, Father, that we would live as Your people, that we would let You tell our story, that we would recognize how You have brought us into Your plan of redemption. We look to you, restore our hearts, let us love you above all things. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray, amen.